You're listening to The J. John Podcast. Subscribe to The J. John Podcast today to catch up with previous episodes. And as ever, if you want to find out more about the Christian faith, visit jjohn.com or follow J. John on social media. You're listening to J. John in conversation with Kathy Madivan. Kathy, welcome to the programme. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. You were born, brought up in Bournemouth, is that I right? I was, yes, right on the south coast, next to the beach. Very lovely. What a great place to live. What was life like growing up there? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a beautiful place to be brought up. And um, I really, really enjoyed living on the south coast. It was um, it was a bit harder sometimes at home. So my, my parents are great, but I think their marriage was a, was a difficult one. And eventually they split up in my teenage years. And I think that was difficult. So whenever I visit Bournemouth, it's both joy, but also some sad memories as well. Of so course. it's a mixture. You went off to Plymouth to study. What did you study? So I was studying sort of marketing and communications down in Plymouth, and I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. I I thought I would do a degree in music, but at the last minute that didn't work out. So I thought, I can talk, let's do communications. So, um, But actually, I I think that was probably God's little steer towards me because it was in Plymouth where I found my faith. And actually that training in how to communicate and, you know, just share good news has been a really big part of my life. And there's a lovely story, Cathy, about you sitting on a golf course. Tell us about that. Well, I was a pretty broken young woman, actually, when I got to Plymouth. And I think, you know, I I always say to people, if you don't have that platform of unconditional love in your life, eventually you do sink. And I, I think I really did sink when I got to Plymouth. And I just didn't know how to plug that gap in my life of just the loss that I was feeling, you know, family and self-esteem and all kinds of things. And this guy started to share his faith with me at university. And if I'm really honest with you, I was not very interested in Jesus, but I was quite interested in him. Yes. So I was like, do tell me more. And he invited me to church. And I was like, that's a date. Obviously, that must be a date. But anyway, he started to share his faith. And the church was so kind to me. They were so welcoming. And eventually, I was sat on this golf course in Plymouth, looking over the view. And I didn't even know it was a prayer, really. But I remember saying to God, if you are real, if this stuff is true, this would be life-changing and I, I would have to completely change my life. And at that point, this, this old guy just walked past me and asked if he could sit on the bench next to me. And I was like, okay, fine. And he said, young lady, um, I don't live in this country. I'm something called a missionary. And as I walked past you, I just really felt prompted to say to you that God really loves you. And I don't know, you know, whether he was an angel, I, I don't know. But I know that that moment, I knew, I knew, I knew that God was real. So I went back to the to the university, found the chaplain and just gave my life to Jesus. And I, I, I can't say that everything changed overnight, but I, I would say at that moment, I suppose that foundation of unconditional love started to be built. And uh, it was it was life changing, completely yeah. life changing. And didn't you say to the uh, chaplain something like, "God is real"? Yeah, I walked in. I was like, "So it turns out God is real." He's like, "Yeah, I know." And he said, "Do you want me to pray a prayer for you?" I was like, "Absolutely not. I'm going to pray it for myself." And he laughed. And I met him years later, actually. And he said I, he'd never had anyone rush into the chaplaincy at the university so determined to give their life to Jesus. So obviously, that moment stuck in his brain as well, which is really lovely because it, it, it really was a, a life-changing time. But isn't it amazing? You're, you're sitting quietly on this bench, on a golf course, 
and this man just comes along. I mean, maybe he was an angel. Yeah, I don't know. And I think what that really spoke to me is, just thinking about it in the years since, what would have happened if he hadn't? Like, what if he had had that nudge from the Holy Spirit and had just thought, well, that's a ridiculous thing to do. Why would that 20-year-old, 19-year-old girl want me to sit? And I've, I think I've challenged myself to think, how many times over the years has God nudged me and I just haven't followed through because I've thought about maybe that person would think I'm crazy or, or whatever. And the truth is you don't know people's stories and you don't know that they could be at that point where they've just cried out to God and you're the one that God has sent their way. And I, that really challenges me because what if he hadn't, you know? God would have found another I, way. Of course, <laughs> but, but we are and can be significant links in Mm. someone's journey of faith. And that person was, and then, well, the person who invited you to church was, then the man on the bench was, then the chaplain was, and and so on. How would you describe what it is that you do now? Well, I think everything I do now goes back to those moments, really. I think when I went into that chaplaincy and he said, would you like me to pray? And I was like, no, I, I, I must somehow verbalise what it is that I, I believe. And then just doing that degree in communications, I knew then that whatever I did, whether it was in a charity, whether it was in the workplace, that it had to be about communicating the good news of Jesus, really. And so the church in Plymouth started immediately to ask me to give my testimony and to get involved. And naturally, just I think one thing led to another. I met my husband, he went into church ministry. And I don't think I ever really asked for a, a permission slip or anyone ever said to me, do you want to go into ministry? But it, it kind of just happened that way that I'm, I love speaking, I love writing, I love encouraging people actually. And I love the thought that somebody else's life could be transformed by Absolutely. Jesus. Absolutely. And you had this opportunity to work with a ministry called the Church Army. Oh, yes, right back and when I was a new Christian. In fact, my father-in-law, uh, Canon Michael Reese, was the chief secretary. I did not know that. Yes. And then that gave you the opportunity to go to different churches each week and speak. Well, yes, and I was literally 21 years old. I think the only theology I had was that Jesus had changed my life. And I was suddenly speaking in a different Anglican church every week. And I mean, it was a steep learning curve and, I, you know, probably those churches were slightly, you know, taken aback by my enthusiasm. But it was wonderful because the church is so rich. You know, one week it could be a, a very charismatic, upbeat church. The next could be a small, rural, more traditional church. But they were all full of fantastic yes. followers of Jesus. And, you know, I learned to really adapt what I was doing to the people that I was with. But I also learned what a wide but beautiful thing the church is. Although I'm more from a Baptist camp, working so much in the Church of England was wonderful. So I loved it. Oh, it's all part of the kingdom. You mentioned the word enthusiasm. And um, the Greek word for enthusiasm is entheos. And the word entheos means in God. So, you know, how can we be in God and not be enthusiastic? Of course. (laughs) Shame when we make church boring, isn't it? Isn't it? (laughs) Now, um, you're you're a speaker, you're an author, you're a coach. Uh, We'll talk about uh, some of your books in a moment. Um, There's uh, one network that you're part of, Kyria, which is lovely, another Greek word, (laughs) noble woman. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so the Curia Network, which I don't pronounce as well as you do, um, is this just fantastic network of women of influence. So they could be women in ministry, they might be women in the marketplace or in their communities, just women who are making a difference, noble women, women of good character, um, who really just need that encouragement uh, to stand firm and to stand together, creating some connections, creating some encouragement. So we run events, but we do a lot of online stuff as well. And it is very inspiring, actually, in the UK and all of the nations where we are, just to see so many amazing women doing such incredible work for the kingdom of God, wherever God has placed them. For me, it feels like a tribe. It feels like a just this hugely welcoming place where women are just built up and released to make a difference. Absolutely. And it's it's great um, that you're doing that and you're investing in others and a younger generation. Now, I've thoroughly enjoyed your your books very, very much. I'm going to mention this one first, Cathy. Uh, Irrepressible. Tell us about this book. Well, this book was really, it's like a book of 12 axioms, I suppose, little phrases. And resilience is something that I really care about, like being able to stay the distance in our faith, but also in our life. How would you define the word resilience? I think resilience, well, again, you know, if you're going back to the root of the word, it really is about being able to grow in places where growth looks impossible. So a little tiny, you know, seed that grows in the cracks of a pavement shows the natural world's resilience. And so it is about being able to continue to not just survive, but to thrive against the odds. So I think that's what resilience is. And I think resilience in our faith is really important. I think one of the things I've really noticed over the years, so my husband um, sadly is is registered blind now, so he's lost his eyesight. And so we talked a lot about unanswered prayer and we talk a lot about disability. And one of the things we've noticed over the years is it's so easy to confuse life and God. Yes. And that if life is bad, then God must be bad. Or if life is unfair, well, then God must be unfair. And part of resilience is understanding that that equation is not true, that life can be really bad, but God is still really good and that he can walk with you through anything. So I think although that book was written not just for Christians, but a wider market, it's full of kingdom of God values really about how can we just stay strong and how can we be honest and real about the challenges? Because I don't think denial is a great strategy. But how can we be honest about the challenges, but put some tools in our toolkit? And that's what it is, really. It's a toolkit toolkit. for helping people to keep going and to keep growing. I like those two words that you mentioned there, Cathy, survive and thrive. Mm. Okay, so what do we need to do? Uh, I know there's 12 principles here, but give us one or two of those principles. Well, I think for, for me, I would say it is really about, the first thing is just to really know who we are and our core values and, you know, dig those deep foundations. And I talk about digging deep foundations so that, you know, when you look at a Japanese skyscraper, it wobbles because it's it's got some flexibility and it. it's got strong foundations, but it's got flexibility in it. And if we want to be able to survive and thrive, we need strong foundations. We need to know who we are, what our values are, but we also need some flexibility. The buildings that crack in earthquakes are the ones that are not built with flex. They have to be able to move as the as the storms come and as the earthquakes come. So I think it's really important that we both have really firm foundations and perhaps our faith is part of our, for me, and, and you know, obviously it's part of the firm foundation, but also the ability to be able to adapt a bit, I think really helps. And then the other thing I think I say in there, um, which uh, one of the principles that means a lot to me is to learn to be 
a thermostat and not just a thermometer. Yes. That you can be a thermometer that just commentates on the atmosphere and talks about what's going on in the world. It doesn't take a lot of skill to just tell you what's going on. But a thermostat is different because a thermostat sets the temperature and then everything else, the atmosphere changes. And I really believe that, you know, to create cultures of resilience, we need to be people who set the thermostat to, to hope and to encouragement and to joy. And we don't set it down to gossip and negativity and criticism. We actually choose where to set the thermostat in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our home. So rather than just commentating on what's going on, we're actually investing in changing the atmosphere around us. That is such a helpful analogy, Cathy. Um, and it's choosing to be positive, isn't it, rather than being negative. You know, the, uh, either the glass is half empty, half full, or it's overflowing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's not just thinking happy thoughts. No. Um, and it's not just self-help. I think it really is understanding that with God's help, we can renew our minds and there is hope in Jesus and there always is. And that's good news. Yeah. And if we change the way that we look at things, the things that we look at change. And I think you're very good at that. As um, as I uh, read your book, uh, you've, you're very perceptive and using very good analogies to help us understand that. And... Um, why do you think we struggle to set the temperature right? Well, I think part of the problem is that we are living in a culture that's constantly telling us that we're dissatisfied. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that really we, we ought to be more, we ought to have more, we ought to, you know, go on holiday more, we ought to have more muscles, we ought, whatever it is, we need more of it. And that there's a sense that we are told continually that we should be discontent. And when you've got a culture and an a, a unbelievably well-funded advertising industry that is constantly telling us that our life is not good enough, um, and then we come to church and sometimes maybe we kind of feel like if we had enough faith, um, that our life would be good enough and we wouldn't feel any of those feelings of discontent. And I think there is a discontent that really we have to keep digging into the riches of who God is to find what it is that we are really searching for. So I think it, that is part of the problem. And also perhaps we're in a culture of apathy where we do expect other people to solve our problems. So it's easy to become a bit of a thermometer, just commentating and consuming because yeah. we're constant consumers rather than being the ones who make the changes and I think that's what we need to be modeling Jesus who made a difference wherever he was. Absolutely well your new book Kathy fascinating why less means more great title <laughs> okay uh, what's this about? Well, it's not just about getting rid of your excess Tupperware and shoes although <laughs> you know that might be an issue but no it's I, I would describe this as almost more of a spiritual declutter. Um, again, it's not just for Christians, but it's been written full of kind of Christian content, hopefully that would be accessible to all. But it is about recalibrating our lives around what matters most, because the world does tell us that we need more, 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 but we can't have more of everything. And I think most of the research tells us that stress is at endemic levels and that Often we are living beyond our limits. We are living at the limits of our resources emotionally, 
physically, spiritually, financially, that we are being, we're breaching our limits all of the time. So, you know, for me, this, this book was about looking at myself, but the, all the people I, I know who are constantly lacking in that margin and that capacity to be able to live their lives well. So it's like, well, what matters most? And how do you make space for that? Okay, give us some biblical examples from the Bible, why less means more. What comes to your mind? Well, there is this amazing little thing in Leviticus 19, where Moses is giving the people of God some fantastic instructions about how to live their life well. And then up comes this random little instruction to leave margin at the edges of your field. You think, well, that's a strange thing for Moses to tell the people to do. Why is he doing that? And not only does he tell them to not to not to kind of like harvest their crops at the edges, but he says, don't go over it a second time either. Know when enough is enough. Understand when you've harvested enough. And then leave margins at the edge, not just for yourself, but so that other people have got room at the edges to glean, other people who need help and who need support, um, that there is some, some wheat, there is some provision for them. And you know, this just, as I was writing this book, I read that and it, it just hit me, you know, that my field is often harvested to the edges. You know, I'd, I don't have time to talk to my neighbour because my diary's full. I don't have enough money to give to the fundraiser because it's all budgeted up. Or, you know, I don't have time to pray because I've got another deadline. And it's like, well, actually, what if I knew when enough was enough on some of those things? And I left some margin around the edges, not just for myself and my own well-being, because that's important, but what if it actually created some capacity for other people who might need a conversation or who might need some provision in some way? So that principle, which actually then goes on to, you know, be involved in other biblical stories like the Book of Ruth, you know, um, that for me really impacted me because I think I'm so often guilty of harvesting to the edges of everything. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think many of us are, aren't we, Kathy? Uh, that is a great principle. Um, from a great story. What comes to mind if you reference something from the New Testament? I love the uh, parable where Jesus talks about the man who, um, he was his benchmark for success in his life was obviously stuff and money. And that is the world's message to us, isn't it? We need more stuff, we need more money. More success, more influence, more followers. And so this guy just keeps building bigger barns to fill up more stuff. And then he's got more stuff, so he builds a bigger barn. So he's got more stuff and he builds a bigger barn, extra extensions all over the place. And um, Jesus, you know, Jesus tells a story. And when, when he passes away, God was thought, well, what, what were you investing your life in? Because you weren't rich towards God. And that's a real challenge, I think, about, you know, we've got one life, we've got our talents, we've got our gifts, we've got our resources. And... It's not wrong to be successful. It's not wrong to, to accumulate things, but it's wrong if that benchmark for success in our life is those things. That actually, uh, one of the things I say in the book is it's less success and more significance. That we're not called just to the world's benchmarks of success. We're called to a life of significance where whatever we have is actually used to make a difference. Um, and I think that's what God, you know, was maybe bringing up in that wonderful passage in the New Testament. Absolutely. Again, another great story, another great principle. Uh, you also talk about uh, the pace of God and that God's pace is walking. And I've often thought about that as well. 
Uh, do you think many times we're running ahead of God? <laughs> I think I probably am guilty sometimes. Yeah, actually, that's um, that's a quote from. He's a Japanese theologian called Kosuke Koyaki, yeah. and it's a. He wrote a book called The Three Mile an Hour God, and he says that love has a speed, and uh, that it's a spiritual speed and not a technological speed. And I think that's so powerful because if love has a speed and it's walking pace, then that's that's really powerful, isn't it? Because it is great that by technology we can broadcast across the world. It is great that we can jump on a plane and that we can fill our diaries, we can do Zoom calls. But actually, if love has a speed, you can't hurry love, as the prophet Phil Collins once said. You know, you can't, can you? You, you can't hurry a relationship. Relationships take time. Relationship with God takes time. Our relationship with our our, our family takes time. And, and sometimes I think we are, are so busy looking to the next thing in our diary that maybe we're not present at the thing that we're in. And I've been really challenged by that three mile an hour. Like, just walk. Don't run everywhere. Just walk a little bit more slowly and that is one of the principles, is less pace, more space. Yes. And, and it's a real challenge. It's very countercultural, I think, to consider our pace and to maybe be more in, in kind of keeping with our circadian rhythms and how God has created us to be. No, I really like that one, Kathy, very much. And uh, it reminds me that in the Garden of Eden, uh, God walked. Throughout the Gospels, the Son of God walked. And throughout the whole Bible, God only ever walks apart from one place. He only ever ran once in the Bible, and that's when he ran towards a prodigal. So you can almost say, as you say in the book, that the, God's pace is walking unless it involves a prodigal, yeah, which fantastic. is quite a thought, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. You know, if there's a prodigal, you can run. But if it's not a prodigal, <laughs> walk. And, and this whole idea of keeping in step with the Spirit how can we keep in step with the Spirit, Kathy? I mean, that's a very big question. But I think part of the answer is, is perhaps beginning to go back to some of those spiritual disciplines, which I think are having a bit of a resurgence at the moment. I think people are, are so aware that we are fried and frazzled um, and that life is so hectic that actually I think people are beginning to rediscover some of the spiritual disciplines of praying, fasting, you know, having quiet times. It's not always possible if you've got little kids and whatever. It's, you know, there are different seasons in life, but um, isolation, spending time on our own sometimes, putting, having a digital, digital detox once a week, just putting our phones away, even just for a few hours, just trying to disconnect from the always-on culture that we're in so that, you know, we are spending time in God's presence so I think it can be very difficult for us to be in step with the Spirit when um, our lives are so congested. And of course, it is possible, as I think Brother Lawrence once said, to practice the presence of God wherever you are. Yeah. But it is quite intentional, I think, that learning to include God in each step. And, you know, I've little things that I've just learned to do, things like when the kettle's boiling, just stopping to pray. Yeah. Just finding ways of punctuating your day with prayer so that you're not just running ahead all of the time and you're actually spending time in the Lord's presence rather than trying to do it in, in our own strength, which I think probably many of us have a tendency to try and do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Killy and I, we try and declutter every year. Wow. We try and do that. And um, every time I acquire a book, I give away a book so that my 
my bookcase never increases. So I, I make little choices and decisions like that. And you, you kind of have to take the principle, don't you, and break it down and make it work for you, don't you? Yes, uh, definitely. And accumulation is a really big issue. And it's not just our stuff, although our stuff is, you know, for the, cl- for the planet, for the climate, learning not to mindlessly accumulate is, you know, I think Richard Foster once called it the undisciplined pursuit of more. That's right. Just this constant accumulation. But I think it's accumulating projects, relationships, things that we feel responsible for. Um, and we're very good at saying yes, but some of us are not so good at then, you know, we, we can pick up, but we're not so good at putting down again. And so I think I mean, it's fantastic that you should be writing the next book on decluttering. You could be the new Marie Kondo. You can- <laughs> <laughs> well, I was ever so encouraged, Kathy, that when a really good friend of ours came to our home um, and he, he said to Killy and I, um, he said, this is the most minimalistic home I've been into. Wow which I was really encouraged about, you know. And, and I, I, the reason I love this book is because we've tried, mm. Killy and I try to live by these principles. That is and, fantastic. Uh, and, and we really do need to. Uh, you mentioned Richard Foster, um, who I knew years ago. And uh, in many ways, as I read through this, uh, Kathy, it reminded me a lot of Richard, uh, his book, Celebration of Discipline. Mm. And in many ways, um, uh, that title, Celebration of Discipline, it's like we don't like it, do we? No. And um, But I think it was the right title for that era. But I think your title, Why Less Means More. And, and if we could only understand that, that actually less does mean more. Yeah. Yes, and boundaries are actually a really good thing sometimes. You know, and it's not that you want to restrict uh, people or that you want to, or we want to downsize our life. Actually, we want life in all of its abundance and all of its fullness, but that's not just found in being busier and having more stuff and, you know, in being completely fried out and our, our relationships wearing out as a result. But if we could have less of some of the things that are draining us dry, we might discover that we get more of the things that really matter most. So where we need to create some boundaries so that we can actually cherish what really matters, then hopefully that will give us a freedom to really enjoy what we what we really care about most of all. Absolutely. Well, I encourage you. This, this really has inspired me. I, be, I, I believe in these principles but uh, we all need to reread them or, or ink them in and reinforce them. And I really do encourage you uh, to pick up this book. Kathy, you're a speaker, you're an author, you're a coach. Uh, what's burning in you for the future? Well, I am really excited at the moment about um, just seeing the church coming to life again post the COVID pandemic and stuff. And um, I'm quite involved in uh, Spring Harvest Festival and uh, my husband and I are writing the theme for that for next year based on Ephesians and really excited to kind of dig deep into the book of Ephesians together with thousands of people. That's going to be really exciting. And because I really feel like this is a moment for the church to recalibrate and to strengthen again and to get a vision of what Jesus wants for this nation at this time. And it's a it's a good time that our, our country could do with hope. 
you know, could do with real hope. We've got enough fake news out there. We need some good news. So this is a time for the, the church to really stand strong on the good news of Jesus. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to investing in that. My husband and I are leading a church in Bristol. We moved there a few months ago. So we're really looking forward to kind of serving the people in Bristol. And we're, we're full of hope for the future. Absolutely. Kathy, it's been great to have you on the programme. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really hope that you've enjoyed that. Uh, I've been inspired talking to Kathy. I hope you have too. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again. If you've enjoyed this episode of the J. John podcast, press subscribe to be notified about future episodes. You've been listening to J. John in conversation with Kathy Madovan.